As Gandhi said, Oh, you too, if it ain't Gandhi. An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. I believe that wholeheartedly. <laughs> no, it doesn't. There'll be one guy left with one eye. How's the last blind guy gonna take out the eye of the last guy left? Who's still got one eye? All that guy has to do is run away and hide behind a bush. Gandhi was wrong. All right. Well, we're going to have great plumber music eventually. John Solomon has good plumber music on his show. Anyways, it's Mr. Manger here. And we're going to talk about something a little different today. I'm going to give you a glimpse into market anarcho-pacifism. Now, you might be saying, what the heck? Who cares? But I think, you know, if we go ahead and walk through this a little bit, you might be intrigued. You might see that there might be a connection here between what you already believe and something maybe just a few inches further, something that might enter into your imagination. Now, that is especially true if you apply a deontological framework to your politics as it already exists. Or if somewhere down the road you have at least tried to do that. Like suppose you have made not only a case about the market based on efficiency, but one based on a moral framework. One that says, whoa, uh, this is an invasion against my rights. It's not merely a bad idea to tax me too much. It's not merely a bad idea to overregulate the economy. These are invasions. Is a coherent convergence between the radicalism of market anarchism and pacifism possible, and perhaps even desirable. Both of these fields of thought require a strong set of convictions and the imagination necessary to navigate accordingly. Market anarchism asserts that the state is an unnecessary entity and rests upon the initiation of violence in order to exist and to perpetuate itself. The market is an arena of peace, and therefore any intervention introduces violence into the equation. Mises Institute senior fellow Thomas E. Woods put it this way. And also to point out that any, any derogation from the free market, anytime we move away from the free market, involves violence, necessarily involves violence. The free market is an arena of peace, peaceful interaction among people. And if you interfere with it, then by definition, you're introducing violence or the threat of violence into the equation. So here's a little uh, a useful uh, mechanism, a device, when you're listening to a political speech or a presidential speech, doesn't matter what party. When you hear the president make a promise, 
I will do thus and so. I will increase the number of thus and so. Mentally add the words with a gun to the end of each sentence, because that's ultimately what it is. Every promise that is being transmitted to you involves the use of a gun. In effect, the the president is saying, I'm going to set aside the free results of voluntary interaction between rational human beings, and I'm instead going to introduce violence. Now, I know... I want to go ahead and preface my response to this by saying I absolutely love Tom Woods and he's shaped the course of much of my own political evolution. Uh, But there's also something to be said here, and that is for as convicting as this may be, if you're only framing this as a device and a little useful mechanism, uh, maybe there's a disconnect here. So let's go through this. Tom Woods is not a pacifist. If you recall, Tom Woods agreed to debate his then co-host of the show Contra Krugman, Robert Murphy, on their Contra Cruise. Um, And the topic then was pacifism. But, you know, if you're actually taking to heart everything Tom Woods just said there, then you could see how these stated convictions would equate economic interventionism as violence and how that would set the table for a form of outright pacifism. Now, Bob Murphy has described himself as a pacifist in the Christian tradition. Um, He's been influenced a good deal by Leo Tolstoy, uh, the great Russian author of War and Peace, who is also a pacifist. Murphy is also an anarcho-capitalist Rothbardian. So this is contention made by Murphy of a group is I want to make the following point that when I argue with people over pacifism it feels just the same to me as when I argue with people about Rothbardianism in particular when it comes to applying those principles in the areas of military defense and law enforcement you out of your mind you want to privatize that stuff too that wouldn't work you would we'd get invaded next Thursday, right? That's how a lot of even minarchists respond. And you realize that they haven't thought it through very hard. They just, because they're so sure that privatized police and military defense are just stupid, they haven't bothered to think it through. They just know it's dumb and they reject it and they focus on whatever, restoring the constitution or something. So, Likewise, I'm saying with pacifism, there are a lot of Rothbardians, a lot of anarcho-capitalists who do not reject the idea of private police or private military defense out of hand. Of course, they thought it through and realized, you know, not only is this not patently stupid, this actually would probably work. And in fact, would even work better than the state system. Murphy has just laid out there is, look, if you're serious about these, uh, standard Rothbardian arguments that make a very high appeal to an ethical, uh, to an ethical standard, 
this isn't really much of a leap. He's saying, you know what, if you've thought this through, it should make sense to get from point A to point B in this matter, from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist framework to one that would actually embrace a full-fledged form of pacifism. So, in essence, Murphy is saying, look, just think it through and you'll get where I am. So Murphy adds, there's all kinds of stuff that, that the community could do to bring pressure on someone as to give the, uh, as to give negative incentives for crime short of inflicting bodily harm. Now that's really fascinating, but I mean, you know, this can go either way. Looking at the Canadian truckers in Ottawa, the government didn't like what they were doing, and I realize I'm using the government here, but, but also GoFundMe. If you recall, GoFundMe put a pause on funding efforts to get the truckers gas they needed when they were protesting, um, you know, basic sustenance, just food in the middle of... Uh, the area that they were protesting in, you know, the Canadian government didn't like what was going on. There were a lot of people on the left who didn't like these protests. And look, to a point, I mean, I, I understand it. You know, not every principle of what I might call proper protesting was necessarily adopted. Okay. You could argue they were blocking goods from legitimately getting from point A to point B by causing a massive amount of traffic congestion. And I hear that. Um, what if we are going to say we're going to put more weight on the right to protest to say a uh, right to free trade? These can come into uh, to conflict once in a while, but nevertheless, this is a this is a fascinating take by Bob Murphy. Say, if it were properly applied, let us say, you have like a petty thief in the neighborhood, or what have we. Um, let's refuse to do business with him and. I don't know if I consider that a perfect argument, but it can be effective if the channels of society are wired as to address real harm done. So that's ostracism at work. And this premise lays the groundwork for Murphy's own blueprint of a stateless society, he has this really fascinating book. It's free on uh, Mises.org. It's called Chaos Theory, Two Essays on Market Anarchy. And why I think this is an important work is it covers private law. It covers the field of law, for one thing, and defense for another. And you would think... Okay, these two landmarks of what make a society function that are so often delegated to 
a formal state has to enforce, if you can cover that territory without the state, that's at least a pretty powerful argument. If your standpoint is, look, the state is unnecessary, here is why. And, you know, that's not even to argue that it is the most effective, efficient, and just social structure that we could possibly conceive of, but it is nevertheless interesting. Now, I want to talk about pacifism in general. Now, words like pacifism and nonviolence seem to imply a passive connotation. But, you know, its, it's advocates don't really mean that. Its advocates don't really mean that a lot of the time. In fact, I would say that the activists within these schools, they, they can be some of the most confrontational people. They, they can hold some of the most staunch convictions, the most strongly held convictions. And putting such ideas to practice requires a good deal of the said confrontation uh, to put it as Gandhi did, to be the change you want to see in the world. So far from merely being uh, passivity or weakness, nonviolence as an ethic can be described as a form of power, a form of strength, a willingness to endure mistreatment and hardship without the intent of repaying evil for evil, a refusal to cooperate with evil, as some would put it, even in the face of bodily harm. If you recall Martin Luther King Jr. leading a lot of his protests, um, one thing that made those so powerful is protesters agreed, apparently beforehand, you know, look, I'm going to get all kinds of stuff thrown at me and I'm just going to keep on marching on the streets. And that's that. The word pacifism was coined by the French peace campaigner Emile Arnaud and adopted by other peace activists at the 10th Universal Peace Congress in Glasgow in the year 1901. Based on pacifique, meaning peaceful, tranquil, calm, Nonviolent, it would embody a strong resistance to war and violence and a faith in peacefully adjudicating disputes from the personal to the international level. Though there's various subsets of pacifism, most of them affirm the view that purposefully inflicting bodily harm when that could be avoided is immoral. Many of the subsets reject even the legitimacy of defensive and responsive harm. Among the various forms of pacifism, its closest approximation to libertarianism is known as conditional deontological pacifism. Alexander Moseley, in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, offers the following description. He says, The pacifist counters that the argument 
to violate rights, to protect rights, is incoherent, for the use of force inherently violates the rights it is supposed to defend or protect. The alleged paradox is resolved, it can be argued, by asserting that rights are things to be upheld and defended, firstly as negative claims requiring an absence of violation, and secondly as positive claims that require freedom to pursue goals. An aggressor violates both elements. A right cannot be of value unless it is defensible, but it does not mean the rights of aggressors are infringed def in defending one's rights. For as Lockean theorists argue, aggressors lose rights in attacking others. So this is pretty close to the libertarian non-aggression principle. I would say that's virtually interchangeable. I mean, the only thing you might take out is this framing as, you know, a positive obligation. But I would qualify this as a subset of conditional deontological pacifism. Well, that's going to do it today. I'd like to go ahead and thank you for joining me. Please share, like, and subscribe. And also check out my MeWe group. We'd love to have you. Love to have some rational discourse and poke a little fun and enjoy a little chaos. Thanks again.